How many have seen, and be honest, how many have seen the Noah movie that's been out in theaters? Anybody seen that movie? Raise your hand high. I want to see it. Raise your high. Okay. Okay, I know some of you saw it because you told me and you're not raising your hand. All right, okay, all right. So, okay, several of you uh, saw it. Somebody asked me if I'm going to watch it, and my response is no. I have people I know and trust that saw it and gave me a report, and I heard enough from their report that I don't want to spend my money on it. When, if it's out on TV and it's free, I may watch it then just to kind of get a feel for what it's all about, but I'm not going to go watch it. But I've read some articles, and I've heard enough, again, from trusted folks that there are a lot of discrepancies from the biblical record. It's one of the reasons I wanted to preach through Genesis is to sort of set the record straight with that story and with many other stories in God's Word because this is the truth in here. And, and what some Hollywood director puts up on the screen and his interpretation of it, that's not truth. This is truth. And so we want to see what the truth says about this story because it's a, it's a powerful story. There, there's much for us to learn from the narrative that we call Noah's Ark. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, so turn there with me. We're just going to look at the first part of this story, Genesis chapter 6, and we'll look at Genesis 7, maybe 8 next week. Genesis chapter 6, this is Noah's Ark, part 1. Now I've divided chapter 6 into four different sections, four different sections of three, if you will. So I'm going to walk through these four different sections to help unpack what's said here in the Word of God. Now, let me just give you kind of a, a disclaimer on the front end. We're going to talk about some stuff tonight that's going to blow your mind. You're going to think, what are you talking about, Wade? All right? So just hang on, okay? I haven't lost my mind. I'm going to walk you through some, 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 some interpretive issues tonight. And so just kind of hang in there with me. And if you have questions uh, at the end, after I get through with all this, some of these complicated things we're going to talk about, and you still have questions, you can email me at frank at longviewpoint.org. It's a joke. That's, that's our associate pastor. Uh, no, we will have time for Q&A uh, at the end. So just keep that in mind as we walk through, through this chapter. So let's begin with three interpretations of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now just kind of a little bit of context. If you remember last week we studied... Genesis chapter 5, which explained the godly line of Seth and how the godly line of Seth led to Noah and his sons. And so the stage has been set for the story of Noah's ark. But before we get to the narrative about Noah and the ark, there is a transitional passage, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And this passage has caused confusion and there have been articles and books written about this passage and debate on this passage for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So let's read it, and I'm going to, I'm going to take my best stab at what this passage means, all right? Let's read it together. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years." The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only 
evil continually. So what's, what's happening there in the first four verses of this chapter? I want to give you three views. Three views. And what I've done is I've given you a quote from a respected Bible teacher under each view. And so these three men that I've quoted uh, are all men that love the Word of God. They all believe the Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. I would have no problem with any of these three men preaching in our pulpit here at Longview Point. James Montgomery Boyce, he's passed away. But, but the other two, I would have no problem with them preaching here at Longview Point. I mean, they're orthodox believers in the faith. And yet, they come to very different conclusions on this text. So there is a degree of uncertainty here, a degree of mystery. We can take our best stab at what this passage means, but we don't want to be too dogmatic, all right? This is one of those things we're going to talk about it, and it's interesting, but we'll know for sure when we get to heaven. That sound good? Okay. So what are the three interpretations of what's happening in this passage? The first, and this is in your notes, the first interpretation is, this is the line of Seth, the line of Cain. Line of Seth, line of Cain view is what I'm uh, calling this. Line of Seth, line of Cain view. the, The phrase under this view, sons of God, refers to the godly line of Seth. Look what it says there in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Then it mentions the sons of God in verse 4 as well. The proponents of this view believe the sons of God refers back to chapter 5, the godly line of Seth. You know that, that Cain killed Abel and he had descendants and his descendants were, were wicked, a lot, of, you know, a lot of ungodliness in his descendants. But then Adam and Eve had another son named Seth and it says at the end of chapter 4 that at that time... Men began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to worship the Lord. So there was godliness in the line of Seth. And his lineage is described in chapter 5. And so scholars think that the sons of God, under this view, refers to the line of Seth intermingling with the ungodly line of Cain. They believe the, the daughters uh, there in verse 1, uh, daughters of man in verse 2, were those who were the, the ungodly line of Cain. So what they say what's happening here is, the, the godly line of Seth is intermingling with the ungodly line of Cain, and corruption is the result. That's what that view says. Now here's, and let me just say this, I, I've, I've held that view uh, a lot of my life. That, that's kind of been my default interpretation of this passage, and a lot of godly men hold that view. A lot of the reformers through church history, like... like uh, Calvin, Luther, going all the way back to Augustine, they hold the view of the line of Seth, line of Cain. But here's the the problem, the interpretive problem with this view. The phrase, sons of God, that's there in verse 2 and in verse 4, when used in the Old Testament, always refers to angels. Job chapter 1 verse 6, Job chapter 2 verse 1, Job 38 verse 7. That phrase, sons of God, always refers to angels. And so, so other scholars say, well, if it refers to angels over here in the ancient book of Job, which was, some believe, the first book of the Bible written, even before Moses wrote Genesis, then it could not mean something different when Moses wrote sons of God. It means angels today. So, so people would say, it can't mean line of Seth, it means angels, which brings up all kinds of problems, right? Because look what it says. The sons of God, or if they believe you believe angels, 
angels saw the daughters of man were attractive. Then in verse 4, the sons of God, the angels came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So when you say sons of God means angels, it opens up a, a big can of worms, okay? Which leads to the next interpretive uh, view. But let me read you this quote from Warren Wiersbe. Wiersbe writes, What was Satan's plan for defeating God's people in Noah's day? To entice the godly line of Seth, the sons of God, to mix with the ungodly line of Cain, the daughters of men, and thus abandon their devotion to the Lord. So Wiersbe, conservative, Bible scholar, loves the Lord, loves the word of God, trustworthy in all that he writes, goes with this view. Okay, That's view number one. We're going to vote Okay, in a, in a minute, see what you think. Here's view number two. If you say, well, sons of God doesn't refer to the line of Seth, it refers to angels. View number two is this. It's, it's what I call the supernatural angel view. Supernatural angel view. And this is where it gets kind of weird, okay? So just, just hang in there. Supernatural angel view. In this view, the phrase sons of God refers to fallen angels. Fallen angels. You know that Revelation 12 tells us that when Satan rebelled against God in heaven, he was thrown out of heaven. He took a third of the angels with him, fallen angels. We know them now as demons. And so the proponents of this view say the sons of God here were fallen angels. And they say, the proponents of this view say, there is a union, some sort of union, between angels and women, fallen angels and women, that produce supernatural giants. They would say in this view that the the phrase Nephilim in verse 4 is is translated giants. They were on the earth in those days and also afterward. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the major reason that that proponents of this view believe the Nephilim are some supernatural giant type figures is because the word Nephilim is used over in Numbers when the spies give a report uh, concerning the promised land. They talk about the Nephilim there, the sons of Anak that were there. Now, it's not talking about the same group of people because whoever the Nephilim are here were wiped out by the flood, right? And so, and so scholars believe the Nephilim in numbers is just a saying they were like, they, were, they had some resemblance to the Nephilim here in the book of Genesis. But others say, well, it's, it's talking about the same type of, same type of being here. And, and the Nephilim were the, the, the uh, result of fallen angels uniting with women. Uh, and having supernatural children. <laughs> I told you it's crazy, right? But a lot of Bible-believing people believe this, or hold to this view. Now here's the problem. How do spirits unite with women? Everything we know about angels, they're non-corporeal beings, right? They're spirit beings. Now, they take on human form when they're on the earth. But, but how, how does that all work out? How do they unite with women? Uh, how can there be offspring? Uh, from a union between fallen angels and women. How does that work? And what about what Jesus said, that angels are neither married or given in marriage? Uh, they, 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 there's not that, there's not that, that sexual uh, union when it comes to angels. They, they, don't, they don't do that. So how do we explain what Jesus said? How do we, how do we understand all of those things? And so the, it's, it's a problematic view, but it is a view that is held. James Montgomery Boyce, great Presbyterian preacher, the end of the 20th, uh, 20th century, said this, Satan was in the garden 
when the promise of a deliverer was given. He heard God say, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3.15. Like Eve, he too must have thought that Cain, the woman's offspring, was the deliverer and must therefore have plotted to turn him into a murderer. He succeeded. He corrupted Cain by getting him to murder Abel, thereby eliminating one of Eve's children and rendering the other unfit to be the savior. Yet Satan failed, for as he was soon to learn, God simply continued on his unruffled way to develop the godly line through which the deliverer would eventually be born. That's Seth. What was Satan to do now? At this point, he conceived the plan of corrupting the entire race by the intermarriage of demons and human beings. The Savior could not be born of a demon-possessed mother. So if Satan could succeed in infecting the entire race, the deliverer could not come. That's what James Montgomery Boyce says, respected Bible scholar. That was Satan's plan to corrupt the entire human race. There would be no line, no lineage through which Jesus could come and be our Lord and Savior. So that's his view. That's view number two. I've always, I've always shied away from that view because there are a lot of questions that you just can't answer that are, that are, are, are tough to, to, to work through. But there is a third view. There is a third view which which accounts for some of the questions that the second view leaves unanswered. It's what's called the demon possession view. The demon possession view. This view is held by John MacArthur, well-known, respected Bible teacher. MacArthur says, Fallen angels possessed human bodies. Now, we know that's biblically possible, right? All throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus is casting demons out of people. So we know that demons can possess people. And MacArthur says that fallen angels possessed human bodies and had offspring actually married, it says there in verse 6, married human women. Look what it says there in Genesis chapter 6. It says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And so MacArthur says, these folks are actually getting married. And how does an angel marry uh, a, a woman? And so his view is that, that fallen angels, demons, possessed men, and those men married human women. So the, the man and the woman had offspring. But it was a human offspring, not supernatural. It was just a human offspring. Uh, and so... Proponents of this view say Nephilim there doesn't mean giant, so to speak. It does over in numbers, but here it, it just means men of renown, okay? Or mighty men. That's how this word is translated. So the demon possession view is fallen angels possessed human bodies, had offspring with human women, but the offspring were not supernatural. They were just corrupted humans, all right? Here's MacArthur's quote on this. The question then comes, how can this be? How can an immaterial spiritual being, a fallen angel, a demon, marry a woman? How can they, how can they have uh, chosen a wife and have a legal ceremony? How can they engage in a marriage? Only one way, folks. They have to take the body of a man. Their strategy was to move into the bodies of males and then to marry beautiful women and to produce children. This would be a demon-dominated union and a demon-dominated family. And what makes it so interesting to me is in verse 3 when the Lord says... My spirit shall not always strive with men. God puts responsibility on, on, for this on whom? On demons? No. God doesn't say my spirit is not. I'm not going to tolerate this demon activity. God doesn't say 
I'm not always going to allow demons to do this. He says, I'm not going to continue to allow men to do this. The indication, therefore, is that this cannot happen unless there is an openness or a willingness. Listen to this. The wickedness of society in the pre-flood era is so great that you have people actually soliciting demon control and the demons will eagerly comply for their goal. Uh, is the uh, is the utmost wretchedness of man. So that's MacArthur's view. So those are our three views, okay? And, and they all leave us with some questions. We're not going to figure this one out this side of heaven. But I'll just go and tell you where I lean. I lean towards the third. I think it makes sense. Um, and, and I want you to know why I hold to sons of God being fallen angels and not just the line of Seth. If all we had was Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, then I would probably lean towards the sons of God referring to the godly line of Seth. But this is not all we have. The New Testament speaks on what's happening here. So let me show you three New Testament passages that us understand what's happening a little bit in Genesis chapter 6. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're confused, say amen. Okay, good, good. Join the club. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The Bible says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So his body died, but his spirit continued to live. In which, in his spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, what in the world is that talking about? Jesus' flesh died, but in his spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits of pri- in prison. We get a little more information in the next verse. Look what it says. Because they, the spirits in prison, formerly did not obey. When? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Interesting. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying here is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, all right, his spirit went to a prison, some, some prison for spirits, And he proclaimed something to them. Scholars believe that during his death on the cross and his bodily resurrection early on Sunday morning, Jesus went to this prison, this holding place for these evil spirits that sinned in the days of Noah and proclaimed to them his victory over Satan. That's what many believe this phrase means, or this passage means. That's one passage to consider. Another one, 2 Peter. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, we know that based upon the New Testament, there are still demons active in the world today, right? They were possessing people. Jesus was casting them out. But this verse says there was a certain group of demons that were cast into a holding place until final judgment. Okay, Who was this certain group of demons? Well, look what it says next. It says, 
If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, again, the context here is Noah, but preserve Noah, herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so there seems to be this connection between these fallen angels in prison and, and Noah. Okay, now let me show you one final verse. Turn to, uh, actually two final, turn to Jude chapter, last book in the Bible before Revelation, Jude verse 6. It's only one chapter. Jude verse 6. Jude mentions here the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, their role as, as angels, as spirits. They, they stepped out of their boundaries. And, and Boyce would say they actually had some type of union with women. MacArthur would say they stepped out of their boundaries by possessing human men and, and marrying human women. So he says... The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So again, there's a certain group of angels, fallen angels, that are not loose on the earth right now. They are in a place of punishment. They are in a a holding place. They are in prison. And this probably refers to the the angels that possessed men and married human women and had corrupt offspring. And so that's the, that's the reason. These, these New Testament verses are the reason that I hold to number three among the interpretive issues. And there's one other verse. You remember when, remember when Jesus uh, came upon a demon-possessed man? He was going to cast the... The, the legion of demons out, and there was a flock of pigs there, and he cast them into the flock of pigs, and the, and the pigs went over the, uh, the cliff and perished in the ocean. Remember that story? You remember one of the demons said before he cast them out of the man, they said, don't send us to the abyss. And that's when he put them in the pigs. Again, a reference to this, this jail where he placed these fallen angels. So based upon the New Testament evidence that seemed to explain there are some fallen angels from the time of Noah in prison, uh, I believe that the demon possession view is the view that, that answers the most questions. It's not perfect. There's still some questions that are raised. But in my mind, it answers the most questions. That, that fallen angels possessed men, and mar- these men married women, and they had children who were under the influence of, of demons. And, and MacArthur indicates that the families invited this demonic control. It was very, very evil. And so whatever happened here, it was enough for God to say, I'm through. I, my, my patience is rapidly coming to an end. I'm going to send judgment. So let's do a quick survey. All right? How many say, wait, I, you know, the other stuff's just too weird. i got to go with view number one, right? Any view number one folks in here? Nobody? That's a very common view. Are you sure? All right. How many say, hey, it's really crazy, but I'm thinking view number two is, is plausible? Y'all are buttering me up. Y'all are... <laughs> How many say, I'm, uh, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm view number three? So somebody convinced me differently. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, good. Uh, that's where I am. But again, 
I'm not dogmatic, okay? I would not be shocked if I get to heaven and it's explained to me differently, okay? All right. So, that's the first thing. Three interpretations of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now, here's the second thing. Let's get to the story of Noah. I want you to see in this passage three things about God. Three things about God. We saw three interpretations of the first four verses, but I want you to see three things about God in this chapter. Number one, I want you to see what he saw. What he saw. He saw great corruption. There in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So he saw the wickedness, he saw the sin of man. It it had gotten so wicked that whatever was happening in verses 1 through 4 was happening, in addition to all the other sin and wickedness among humanity. And so somewhere uh, in all of this transpiring, humanity crosses the line in the heart of God. And God has had enough. And God is ready to send his judgment. Now, what does he see? He sees, first of all, the extensiveness of sin. The extensiveness of sin. It says there, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Everywhere you looked, there was wickedness. Everywhere you looked, there was sin. Look in verses 11 and 12 of this same chapter. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. This is what he sees. And the earth was filled, everyone say filled, filled with violence. And God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt for all flesh. Notice that, all flesh, by the way, including Noah, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh had sin. And everywhere he looks, he sees wickedness. He sees the extensiveness of sin. Sin had spread everywhere. And by the way, we see the same thing today, right? Everywhere you look, every corner of society, you see sin. It's everywhere. But God also saw the intensiveness of sin. The intensiveness of sin. It was widespread, but it also was ruining individuals. Look what it says in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. Let me say three things about the intensiveness of sin. How intense, how, how sin completely ruins you, how it completely ruins me. First of all, sin corrupts the heart. He says there, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, sin is not, you know, oops, I messed up. Oops, I made a mistake. You know, you know oops, I did this. Oops, I did that. No, sin is rebellion against God driven by a depraved heart. All the evil things we do flow from our evil, wicked hearts, which is an indicator that, hey, we need a new heart, right? Only one way to get a new heart is through Jesus. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but we see here that, that sin is intensive. It ruins, it ruins the heart. We are born with a sin nature, and that sin nature corrupts us from the inside out. That's why when you hear all these TV preachers that say, you know, shake off your past and, and shake off those mistakes. And, and listen, it's not a mistake. It's not an oops. It's, it's, it's rebellion against God. A holy, perfect, righteous God. It's a big deal. And we're corrupt to the very core of our being. That's what's happening here. It's still happening today. Not only does sin corrupt the heart, but sin is perpetual. Look what it says in verse 5. 
He saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And he says there, continually. Only evil continually. It goes on and on and on. Sin goes from one generation to the next and and that generation to the next because everyone that is born is born with a sin nature. That's why the Bible says, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so God sees the, the extensiveness of sin and the intensiveness of sin. It's, it's corrupting people from the inside out and it's being perpetuated to generation after generation. But then we see that sin corrupts rapidly. If you look at the genealogy in chapter 5, Noah is only the 10th generation from Adam. That's not a long time in the big scheme of things. But notice how rapid sin's advance has, has been. Noah is only 10 generations from Adam, and in and, and, and 10 generations we have all of a sudden demons possessing men and marrying women and, I mean, inviting demonic control. I mean, it's crazy, right? How wicked things have gotten. And, and so sin corrupts rapidly, corrupts rapidly. But notice there in verse 6 or verse 5 it says, God saw, the Lord saw. Now here's what you need to understand, what we need to walk away with from this chapter. God sees everything. No one gets away with anything, right? No one. Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. I still remember the room I was in, in my church growing up, the Sunday school room I was in, when someone told me that God saw everything that I did. And I was a little guy, and I remember looking up going, whoa. Like, I I knew as a a little boy in Sunday school, that that was a heavy thought, And it is a heavy thought, right? Everything we've ever done, everything we ever will do, the thoughts and intentions of our heart, the motivations of our life are all bare to the gaze of God. God sees it all. And he sees the extent of corruption going on here on the planet. So we see what he saw. But secondly, I want you to see what he felt. What he felt. Look in verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Strong statement. We see here that God felt the strong emotion of regret. He regretted, it says there in verse 6. Verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, when God created humanity, did he know this was going to happen? Of course he did. He knows everything, right? If he doesn't know everything, he's not God. He knew everything. He knew this was going to happen. But he still had his plan and purpose and still set creation into into, uh, existence. And and then when humanity fell, he had his plan of redemption that we see worked out throughout the remainder of the Bible. So, yes, he knew this was going to happen, but he still has emotion. And when he sees humanity, humanity turning their back to him and inviting demon possession and the extent of corruption on the earth, he, he, he feels the grief. He feels the regret over, over creating them. The word regret there, translated in verse 6, 
comes from a primitive root word that literally means to breathe strongly, to sigh. It speaks of pain in his heart. It, it reminds me of the verse found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, where it says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God. Did you know it's possible to grieve the Spirit of God? For the Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, to grieve over your decisions. To have sadness and emotion. And so that's what God's experiencing here. God feels the emotion, the strong emotion of regret. But then I want you to see what he chose to do. What he chose to do. Verse 7, the Bible says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the, of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But then there's a, there's a ray of hope here. He says in verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God chose to completely destroy humanity with the gracious exception of one family. God chose to completely destroy humanity with the gracious exception of one family. So God says, I'm going to to destroy everything, but I'm going to keep one family alive. Because remember, God had a plan to send a Savior, a Redeemer, for you and for me. And so God keeps that plan intact by preserving Noah and his family. That is God's plan. So we see there are three things about God. But then I want you to see three things about Noah. Three things about Noah. We see this in verse 9. By the word, these three phrases we're going to study about Noah are only ten words in the original Hebrew language. And this section in the Hebrew, begins and ends with his name. So it's a neat little section about Noah's character. Three things about Noah. Number one, he was righteous before God. Look in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was righteous toward God. This speaks of his position before God. Now, everybody look at me for a moment. I want to tell you something very, very important. Noah was not saved because he had earned a right standing before God. And this speaks of how people before the cross were saved. You ever thought about how folks before Jesus were saved? Here's the answer. People before the cross, Old Testament saints, were saved just like you and I are saved. Repentance and faith. Placing their faith in what God was going to do. So, Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to God's saving work through his Redeemer. We're saved by looking back at the work of Jesus, our Redeemer. But we're all saved by faith. Over in Genesis chapter 15, it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So how does someone in the Old Testament find themselves in a right standing before God? The same way we do, by placing their faith in God's Savior. The Savior, in this case, that he was going to sin in fulfillment of his promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so Noah did not earn a right standing with God. He was righteous. He had a right standing with God because he'd placed his faith in God's plan. And that gave him a right standing with God. He was righteous toward God, it says there in verse 9. Righteous toward God. Not only was he righteous toward God... 
The second phrase there says, he was blameless in his generation. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. This speaks of his lifestyle among the people of his time. In other words, he stood head and shoulders morally above everyone else because he had a right standing with God. You see, what happens when you place your faith in the Lord, not only does he justify you, but he begins to sanctify you. He begins to change your life, right? He takes that old, corrupt, wicked heart, gives you a brand new heart, fills you with the Spirit and dwells you with the Spirit, so he begins to change your life and, and give you uh, uh, victories in, in, in areas of morality in your life. And so Noah was a righteous man, rightly related to God, and he was blameless in his generation because God was working in him. In other words, Noah's blamelessness was a, was a reflection of God's grace in his life. Listen, if there's anything good coming out of you, it's grace. If there's anything good coming out of me, it's grace. Right? It's not because we have it figured out, no one else does. It's because of grace, God's unmerited favor in our life. And if Old Testament folks are saved the same way that we're saved, then Noah places faith in God's Redeemer, that he was going to send. He was rightly read to God, had a righteous standing before God, and then God began to change him. And by his grace, Noah stood head and shoulders above the other people living on the face of the earth, which shows you that... There were very few that had placed their faith in the Lord. Maybe only one. And so he was blameless in his generation. Second Peter says that he was a preacher of righteousness. And so, while he was relating to God, getting the instructions from God, building the ark, we know that, that Noah was preaching of God's impending Judgment. He was preaching righteousness to the people, calling them to repent and believe in God. He was blameless in his generation. By the way, isn't that a great goal for us to be blameless in our generation? That we would so, so love the Lord and let him have his way in our life, live so surrendered to the Lord that he would give us a growing righteousness, a, a growing victory over our sins so that we can be salt and light in this earth. That's what Noah was. And so the Bible says he was righteous toward God, blameless in his generation. But third, he walked with God. Verse 9, this reminds us of Enoch. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. This speaks as we talked about last week with Enoch, of a personal relationship with God. He walked with God. So those are three things about Noah that you need to understand. And we see why God chooses Noah to be saved from this blameless, or from this uh, perverse generation. Now, this is interesting, just kind of a little footnote for you. The, the flood narrative, the story of the flood, is found in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. And in those four chapters, there are four speeches by God. Four speeches. And you can summarize the four speeches by God like this. The first one is, build the ark. The second speech we see from God is, get in the ark. The third speech is, get out of the ark. And the fourth is, be fruitful and multiply. Those are his four speeches, all right? Get in, get out, uh, build, get in, get out, be fruitful and multiply. So I want you to see God's first speech, okay? This leads us to number four. Three things about 
God's speech. Three things about God's speech. First of all, the Creator determines the rules. The Creator determines the rules. Look what it says in verse 12 of chapter 6. Well, verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. That's pretty serious stuff, right? An end to all flesh. It's, it's interesting, and by the way, we've done this, but it's interesting how Noah's Ark becomes such a popular theme for, for baby nurseries. Cameron our firstborn, we had Noah's Ark stuff on the wall and Noah's Ark bedding and, you know, Noah's Ark pictures and, you know, little drafts and, you know, like, like it's a cute little story. It's a terrifying story. I mean, one thing we didn't have on the wall were people drowning, right? So that'd be morbid for a baby's room. Absolutely, but that, isn't that the story? That's what he says. He says, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now look at his, to his, at his instructions for Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. And so we see here God giving... Noah, his salvation instructions. He says, Noah, if, if you want to be saved, this is what you've got to do. Notice here, God's not asking for advice, is he? He doesn't say to Noah, Noah, judgment's coming. See if you can figure out a way to be saved. Which is what all the world religions are trying to do. They're trying to figure out a way to be saved. They're, they're trying to figure out their own way to get to God, right? It's what, it's what Islam's about and Buddhism's about and Hinduism's about. They're, they're, whatever their concept of God is, they're trying to figure out their way to be right with God. But notice here, God doesn't say figure out the way. He says, I'm going to tell you the way you're going to be saved. This is not up for discussion. This is the only way that you will be saved. The Creator determines the rules. Verse 20, uh, verse 20 says, Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing, of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is to be eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. And so God's saying here, you get on the ark, put animals on the ark, Food on the ark, and, and you will be saved. You will survive. But notice here that God gave him just one way to be saved from destruction. And you know what? It's the same when it comes to eternal salvation. God doesn't say, figure it out. Or he doesn't say, whatever way seems best to you, save yourself. Right? God tells us, 
that on the other side of death is judgment. And the only way to be ready for the judgment, the only way to be saved from God's judgment is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am what? The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God doesn't say figure it out or all roads lead to me. No, he says there's just one way. Just one way to be saved. And so these instructions to Noah remind us that, that the Creator determines the rules. You don't make up how you get to God. You don't, you don't make it up in your own mind or in your own heart. You just obey what God reveals to you from His Word. The Creator determines the rules. And so we have in our society today this idea here all the time, you know, we're all, regardless of what religion you follow, we're all just children of God. Eh, wrong answer. The only way you're a child of God is if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. All roads lead to God. Eh, wrong answer. All roads do not lead to God. Jesus said there's only one way to God. And if Jesus rose from the dead, and I'm betting my eternity on the fact that he did, we ought to listen to what he says. Amen? And what did he say? He said he's the only way to get to the Father. And so, the Creator determines the rules. And it doesn't matter if if the majority of people around you don't like the rules or don't like what God says or don't like what Jesus says. doesn't matter. He's the Creator. He determines the rules, not us, right? The Creator determines the rules. Secondly, God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. Verse 17 God says, I behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come to the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So he's saying there, I'm going to destroy everything, but I'm going to preserve you and your family and start over. So God keeps a remnant uh, through whom he can continue to build a people, so he can send a Messiah as the Savior of the world. God always has a remnant. And third thing here is, Noah's righteousness blessed his family. Look in verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. We don't know a whole lot at this point about the the children's spiritual condition, but we know that because Noah's going to be saved, his family was going to be saved. They were blessed by his right standing with God. Turn to Proverbs 20 with me very quickly. I want to show you this verse. Proverbs 20. Look in verse 7. Great verse. My wife gave me a little framed picture, and it sits right in the corner of my bathroom, right by my bathroom sink, and I see, it, I see it every morning. Here's what it says. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Isn't that a good verse? In other words, your relationship with God, your intimacy with the Father, your love for the Lord, will be a blessing to those that come behind you. 
It was so with Noah. The reason his family was saved it was because of Noah's relationship with God. And the end of Genesis chapter 6, look how Noah responds to this first speech. Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So that's, that's, that's smart on Noah's part. God speaks. He responds. He obeys what God says. So here's what we see in chapter 6. Three interpretations of a very difficult passage. All right. I gave you three options. We see three things about God. We see three things about Noah. And three things about God's speech. But here's how I want to close tonight before we take some questions. Don't miss the big picture. The reason God is preserving Noah and his family is so that he would be able to one day go to Abraham. Say, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a child. And through your descendant and his descendants, I'm going to build a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. And through your people, all the other peoples, all the people groups of the earth will be blessed. And that promise to Abraham was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came through the Jewish people. And Jesus Christ came, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man. And Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross. He took all the sins of humanity on his own shoulders And he died on the cross. He took the wrath of God that you and I deserve, the punishment we deserve. The Father was pouring out his wrath upon the Son at Calvary. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the infinite debt that we could not pay. And after he died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, he rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. And so you should not be able to read Noah without thinking about Jesus. And I'm going to show you in the coming weeks how the ark is a picture of Jesus and his salvation. So we're going to talk a lot more about that in the coming days. But in the midst of this really difficult story where God's about to wipe out all of humanity, we see this glimpse of grace. Except for you, Noah. Build the ark. I'm going to save you and your family. Aren't you grateful for the grace of God? The grace of God.